0: Hey guys, LD here and TJ with a small parental warning. The following program contains mature content, including, but not limited to, mature quotes, drug use, violence, suggestive situations. And, and law
1: breaking gun, love and running with scissors and just about everything your mother ever told you not to do which may not be
0: suitable for all audiences.
1: Listener discretion
2: is advised. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with L.D. and T.J. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs>
0: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is the beautiful TJ. Oh, hey. Stress ball, huh?
1: Huge. Huge (laughs) stress ball. (laughs) I don't know where this week went. Um, Yeah, absolutely just bonkers. Like the end of last week and then all last weekend and then this week spent catching up from... The end of last week and this this past weekend. Uh, Yeah. And then another concert thrown in just to keep me on my toes. (laughs) I started a YouTube
0: channel. Yes, you did. (laughs) And uh, so that's going fun. And so tomorrow I am going to be doing a Harley Quinn class. So it's how to get Harley Quinn's look. So that's my next video. (laughs) Well, all right then. 40-year-old woman dressing like a 29-year-old girl. It's going to be awesome. I'm a nerd you're not that far off from Margot Robbie (laughs) Margot Robbie is 11 years younger than me she's still a uh, she's 29
1: oh is she yeah oh she's got
0: one of those faces that it looks like she could either be 50 or 10
1: not 50 (laughs) I wouldn't say quite 50 I would say like my age but 78 yes (laughs) yes I am 78 years old thanks
0: You look really young for 78. I look real good for 78. You do look great for 78.
1: One of my friends does this thing where when it's her birthday, she'll tell people it's her birthday. And then when they ask her how old she is, she'll tell them like way higher than she actually is so that they're like, they're like, wow, you look great. And she's like, oh, thanks. (laughs) So she's like 40 and she tells everybody she's 48. See,
0: I kind of I do something on a much smaller scale is I'll start telling people that like I'm 41, even though I'm still 40 is it's like me
1: mentally preparing myself for the next 365 days. So no, I told Chip (laughs) when I met him that I was going to claim 28 until I could no longer claim 28. And then I would claim the next stage that I could get away with. I think I could get
0: away with maybe 32. Yeah, maybe I could get away with 32. I mean, I don't have, like, the worry lines and the crow's feet yet, so I feel like I'm firmly planted in the 30s. So Yeah, you
1: could you could do that.
0: So me being the queen of segues, who are we talking about today?
1: So this week we start our month of East Coast, West Coast rap feud with Biggie Smalls. Which means in two weeks, I will be doing Tupac. A.K.A. Notorious B.I.G. Uh, this for is just me. Tupac
0: or Machiavelli for me. But I see, and I when I assigned the two, I felt like you were more like Biggie, and I was more like Tupac because Tupac. You saying I'm fat? No, I was saying like. That's <laughs> he. If you go to that, that's a personal problem. That's a you problem, <laughs> not a me problem. Hey, I'm working on it. I was talking about because Tupac was like a young actor and. Yeah. Did a lot of, like, he went to acting school and was very creative and stuff like that. And I felt like a kinship to Tupac, and that's why I gave you Biggie, was because I thought Biggie was not, he was more musically inclined. Right. Whereas Tupac was an actor and a rapper, and he he did, like, weird, multifaceted things. Because well, he's a West Coast.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. I felt- a, He's in La La Land, so, of course, he's got to act, too.
0: So, I felt like, in the podcast universe, I am Tupac and you are Biggie.
1: Okay. <laughs> I I mean I don't even know what to say to that So I'm just gonna start the episode Yeah yeah. yeah. So Biggie aka Notorious B.I.G Which actually it's technically Notorious B.I.G A.K.A. Biggie A.K.A. Christopher George Latour Wallace I could see why he would change that to something easier well, <laughs> He mostly went by Chris Wallace Or Christopher Wallace
0: like, Th- That's the one I know him by
1: Yeah But I just had all his like middle names and stuff You know Because that's what he was born as. So he was born Christopher Wallace in Brooklyn, New York at St. Mary's Hospital on May 21st, 1972. The only child of Jamaican immigrant parents. His mother, Valletta Wallace, was a preschool teacher while his father, Selwyn George Latour, was a welder and politician. His father left the family when Wallace was just two years old and his mother worked two jobs while raising him. Wallace excelled at Queen of All Saints Middle School, winning several awards as an English student, which makes sense, writer, you know. Yeah. He was nicknamed Big because he was overweight by the age of 10. Wallace said he started dealing drugs when he was around the age of only 12. Can you believe that? 12 years old, dealing drugs. That sucks. I, Considering that his father was a politician, that's... Well, his dad was a... A welder. Yeah. So I'm not really sure where the politician part came into play, honestly. I didn't really do too big of a deep dive on the family side.
0: But you got to think that is so dangerous for a kid. But the fact that he was, he started when he was 12.
1: Yeah, but his dad wasn't around. His dad left when he was only two.
0: I'm not talking about his dad. I'm talking about his drug dealing. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's so incredibly dangerous to have a think about how dangerous it is for a full grown adult to do. Yeah. And this kid's walking into a potentially very dangerous situation. You get arrested.
1: Yeah. You, you get killed. So basically you see right from the get-go he's kind of already on the wrong side of things. He's living dangerously. He's living dangerously. His mother, often away at work, did not know of his drug dealing until he was an adult. He began rapping as a teenager, entertaining people on the streets, and performed with local groups, the Old Gold Brothers, and the Techniques At his request, Wallace transferred from Bishop Laughlin Memorial High School in Fort Greene to George Westinghouse Career and Technical Education High School in downtown Brooklyn. Holy crap, that's a mouthful.
0: Well, that's, I think, why they just changed it all to PS102. Probably. Probably. all the schools are just
1: now (laughs) PS102. So, the school that he transferred to, this George Westinghouse, (laughs) etc.
0: That's the rock and roll heaven spirit just... Quit
1: in the middle of saying it. (laughs) Yeah. I already said the name of it. I don't need to say it again. (laughs) Rewind and listen to it again if you need to. Anyways, this was also the school which future rappers DMX, Jay-Z, and Busta Rhymes were also attending. That is a talented school. Yes, it is. I mean, I love DMX. This is like my era of hip hop. Like the late 90s to early 2000s is when I was listening to hip hop. Before I get too much further into the episode, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, this episode is, is rife with uh, quotes that may not be suitable for tiny ears. So just be forewarned. We'll put the little E on the episode. But uh, yeah, just before we get too much further, because it's going to happen. And I don't want to forget to warn you in advance. So this is the parental advisory is in effect. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all hip hop and rappers. It's crime world it's murder i mean come on you probably already know this is not the right episode for your youngin yeah so he's going to this new school with all the other rappers according to his mother wallace was still a really good student but developed a smart ass attitude at the new school see these are the kind of things watch out for little years
0: and then again that's why i gave you biggie (laughs) smart ass remarks
1: yep at age 17 wallace dropped out of school and became more involved in crime In 1989, he was arrested on weapons charges in Brooklyn and sentenced to five years probation. In 1990, he was arrested on a violation of his probation. A year later, Wallace was arrested in North Carolina for dealing crack cocaine. He spent nine months in jail before making bail. So this is a very young biggie because he's 17, 18 at this point, 19. So yeah, so he's 17, 18, 19 at this point. After being released from jail, Wallace made a demo tape called Microphone Murderer under the name Biggie Smalls, a reference to Calvin Lockhart's character in the 1975 film Let's Do It Again, as well as his own stature and obesity. He was 6'2", 6'3", and weighed between 300 and 380 pounds, according to different accounts. So, yeah. The tape was reportedly made with no serious intent of getting a recording deal. However, it was promoted by New York-based DJ Mr. C, who had previously worked with Big Daddy Kane, and in 1992 it was heard by the editor of The Source, which is a hip-hop and entertainment magazine, which I'll be coming back to a lot of instances where they're talking with him or interviewing him. That was a big part of his career, was being in The Source. In March, Wallace was featured in The Source's unsigned hype column, dedicated to aspiring rappers and made a recording off the back of this success. His style was described as cool, nasal, and filtered to bless his own material. The demo tape was heard by Uptown Records A&R and record producer, this name might sound familiar, Sean Puffy Combs. You mean P. Diddy or Sean Combs? A.K.A. Puff Daddy. (laughs) A.K.A. Diddy. A.K.A. AKA The the artist formerly known as Diddy. A.K.A. 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 AKA. (laughs) Aka,
0: pretty, look, Puffy, I AKA. love you. Please
1: stop changing your name. It is
0: getting confusing. It's
1: really hard to know where who he is at any given moment. What his name is.
0: I'm changing my name to L
1: Diddy. Is that okay? As long as I can take change mine to T Jazz.
0: Uh, T Jazzle actually. T
1: Jazzle, sorry. Yeah, that's better.
0: Yeah. So, uh, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am L Diddy. Along with me for the ride is T Jazzle.
1: Oh hey, <laughs> we should change him for these two episodes. I think it's fun.
0: <laughs> it's too late. I already pressed the record button. Dang,
1: <laughs> Sean Combs, because that's what I'm going to call him for the rest of this episode. Because I can't. He
0: puffy. Oh, puffy. <laughs> I'm not calling
1: him puffy. I'm calling him Sean Combs because lame. Well, most of his involvement is business
0: fine.
1: So anyways, at the time, Sean Combs is an A&R guy for Uptown Records, and he arranged for a meeting with Wallace. Wallace was signed to Uptown immediately and made an appearance on label mates, Heavy D and the Boys, a bunch of niggas from the album Blue Funk. All right, so off episode. (laughs) LD is very concerned about this. I'm putting a sensor on right now. I've already explained that this is an explicit episode based on quotes and comments, titles, lyrics, etc. But to further clarify, some of this includes the N-word. I'm just quoting. I'm using I'm using proper album titles, proper song lyrics, etc. It's going to get said. So please understand that
0: this is not our word. We mean no disrespect by using it. It's in song titles. It's in quotes. And... To keep the integrity of it, TJ will be saying this word, but please understand that this is not a word that we would ever use in any context anywhere. No. So, I'm I'm very sensitive about that word and the and and the connotations that go from two white girls saying it on a podcast. So, just ahead, please understand this is not our word;
1: they're not our comments. It's just it's topical, and I don't want to censor out important content for because we're sensitive about it yeah so wallace meets combs who arranges a meeting and he signed immediately to uptown records and it made an appearance on label mates heavy d and the boys a bunch of niggas from the album blue funk in mid 1993 a year after wallace signed his recording contracts combs was fired from uptown and a week later combs started a new label bad boy records Bad Boys for Life. Yeah. Wallace followed and signed to the label on the same day that Bad Boy Records was founded. In April 1993, his solo track Party and Bullshit appeared on the Who's the Man soundtrack. <laughs> Do you remember that soundtrack? You remember that movie? That's crazy. Funny
0: enough, I don't think I remember that movie.
1: <laughs> it's like
0: the first time this has ever happened on the podcast. On August 8,
1: 1993, Wallace's longtime girlfriend gave birth to his first child, Tiana. Wallace had split with his girlfriend some time before Tiana's birth. Despite having dropped out of high school himself, Wallace wanted his daughter to complete her education. He promised her, quote, everything she wanted, saying that if his mother had promised him the same, he would have graduated at the top of his class. He continued selling drugs after Tiana's birth to support his daughter financially. But when Combs discovered this, so kudos to Combs, he forced Wallace to quit dealing Later in the year, Wallace, recording as the Notorious B.I.G., gained exposure after featuring on a remix to Mary J. Blige's single, Real Love. Real love. This is all of my, like, middle school, early high school stuff. Like, this is my jams. Anyways. So, he recorded under the name Notorious B.I.G. for the remainder of his career after finding that his original moniker, Biggie Smalls, was already in use. <laughs> Seriously? Yes. That's weird. I know. Real Love peaked at number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and was followed by a remix of Blige's What's the 411? He continued this success to a lesser extent on remixes with Nana Cherry, a song called Buddy X, and reggae artist Super Cat on Dolly My Baby, also featuring Combs in 1993. Do you remember Eagle Eye Cherry? Yes.
0: Yeah, I think they're related somehow, but I don't know how. Okay. It's like either brother and sister or mom and son, I think. I don't know.
1: On July 1994, he appeared alongside LL Cool J and Busta Rhymes on a remix to label mate Craig Max' Flavor in Ear," which reached number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. Hip-hop was so hot in the 90s. I was oh. so young, but it was so hot.
0: Oh, man, it was so good because, like, that was, like, the good time. Okay, that was, like... Like I probably shouldn't have been listening to it, but I was. No, that's like the beginning of the end for MTV because right. not soon after that, they started playing like the real world and then Road Rules came along and like Total War Class Live and all that stuff like kind of culminated in them phasing out actually playing music videos. So hip hop and grunge were kind of the tail end of MTV's well, sig- like like the glory days. Yeah, the great days of yeah. MTV being like the go to channel for a teenager
1: because TRL continued into the 2000s. into the 2000s. Yeah, it continued into the two thousands,
0: and so. Yeah. But,
1: but uh, this was the heyday the, when you really actually, this was like, like the good stuff. Really, hear and see the music videos all the time. On August fourth, nineteen ninety four. Wallace married R&B singer Faith Evans after they met at a Bad Boy photo shoot. Five days later, Wallace had his first pop chart success as a solo artist with the double A-side Juicy and Unbelievable, which reached number 27 as the lead single to his debut album. Ready to Die was released on September 13, 1994. That's his debut album name. It reached number 13 on the Billboard 200 chart and was eventually certified four times platinum. The album shifted attention back to East Coast hip-hop at a time when West Coast hip-hop dominated U.S. charts. It gained strong reviews and has continued to receive a lot of praise in retrospect. In addition to Juicy, the record produced two hit singles, the platinum-selling Big Papa. I love it when you call me Big Papa. (laughs) I love that song. (laughs) Which really... (laughs) hope you're taking out me like singing these ridiculous hook lines or maybe maybe you should leave them in i don't know i am not they are staying in wonderful i'm so glad that the whole of our listeners are going to realize just what a nerd i am today anyways big papa reached number one on the u.s rap chart and one more chance which sold 1.1 million copies in 1995 Buster Rhymes claimed to have seen Wallace giving out free copies of Ready to Die from his home, which, how cool is that? (laughs) Which Rhymes reasoned as his way of marketing himself. Around the time of the album's release, Wallace became friends with fellow rapper and next week's topic artist, Tupac Shakur. Lil Sees, who I'll kind of touch on him a little bit later, but he was Biggie's cousin and then also became part of what I'm going to talk about in a moment. And I say Little C's, it's spelled Little Cease, but it's short for Little Caesar. That was my cat's name. Yeah, so it's Little C's, short for for Little Caesar. So Little C's recalled the pair as close, often traveling together whenever they were not working. According to him, Wallace was a frequent guest at Shakur's home, and they spent time together when Shakur was in California or Washington, D.C., Yuckmouth in Oakland MC claimed that Wallace's style was inspired by Shakur. Wallace also befriended basketball player Shaquille O'Neal. O'Neal said they were introduced during a listening session for Gimme the Loot. Wallace mentioned him in the lyrics and thereby attracted O'Neal to his music. O'Neal requested a collaboration with Wallace, which resulted in the song You Can't Stop the Rain. According to Combs, Wallace would not collaborate with anybody he didn't really respect. And that Wallace paid O'Neill his respect by shouting him out. And I wanted to try to find a little more information on this. And then I ran out of time. But all I know is in 2015, Daz Dillinger, who was also a frequent Shakur collaborator, said that he and Wallace were cool with Wallace traveling to meet him to smoke pot and record two songs at some point. I'm not sure what those two songs were. So I'm very sorry. I don't have that information for you. And by the way, in the research, it said to smoke Cannabis. I'm like, um, that seems mm. a little formal. The pot. They went to smoke
0: the marijuana. The Mary Jane.
1: They did the drugs. They smoked all the drugs. <laughs> That's not true. They only smoked pot, according to this <laughs> account.
0: I was just trying to be as dainty as possible. As 1950s housewife, as po- as reefer madness as possible.
1: You're trying to be run- Wonder Bread over there? They
0: smoked all
1: the drugs. Okay. Moving on. In August 1995, Wallace's protege group, Junior Mafia, released their debut album, Conspiracy. And we finally came to one. Fun fact! The Mafia in Junior Mafia is an acronym. So when you see it, it's actually spelled out M-A-F-I-A. And it stands for Masters at Finding Intelligent Attitudes. Okay, that's pretty cool. Right? (laughs) So the group actually consisted of his friends from childhood and included rappers such as Lil' Kim and Lil' C's, as I mentioned earlier, his cousin.
0: Oh, I love Lil' Kim.
1: Lil' Kim is awesome. She was rad, too. Each of them, obviously, as we're talking about how much we love Lil' Kim, each of them went on to have their own solo careers. The record went gold and its singles Players Anthem and Get Money, both featuring Wallace, went gold and platinum. Wallace continued to work with R&B artists, collaborating with groups 112 on Only You and Total on Can't See You, with both reaching the top 20 of the Hot 100. By the end of the year, Wallace was the top-selling male solo artist and rapper in the U.S. pop and R&B charts. In July 1995, he appeared on the cover of The Source with the caption, The King of New York Takes Over. That's
0: the, the magazine, The Source, right? The yeah. Source magazine?
1: Yeah, The Source magazine. So this, actually, The the King of New York takes over, the caption that was on the cover, is actually a reference to his Frank White alias from the 1990 film King of New York. Makes sense. Yeah. At The Source Awards in August 1995, he was named Best New Artist Solo, Lyricist of the Year, Live Performer of the Year, and his Debut Album of the Year. At the Billboard Awards, though... He was named Rap Artist of the Year, that year, 95. Okay, so LD went and double-checked in her notes because I didn't have it in mind. But so, yes, uh, apparently at the Source Awards, because this whole rivalry thing had already started, was souring the relationship between Biggie and Tupac. Suge Knight, I guess, at the Source Awards stood up and called out Sean Combs and... Like, Tupac couldn't attend because he was in the hospital. This was a whole thing. But we'll touch more on that in the next episode.
0: And I think right now would be a fantastic time for a break from our sponsors. So hold tight and we'll be right back. And that's our break.
1: (laughs) We're back. So where we left off, we're coming back just after the 1995 Source Awards.
0: Which I remember that was a really big deal because it was televised. Yeah. And so that that really like threw the, like the gauntlet was thrown that night. Right. Worse than when Kanye shut down T-Swift. T- or when Nikki called out Miley Cyrus. Yep.
1: Ooh, that, that was so biting. We, we maybe need to stop uh, having our feuds televised. Thanks. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways. It was a big year, though, for Biggie. Like, he did really good at those awards. During this year of success, Wallace became involved in, as we've we've started kind of mentioning and talking about a little bit, he became involved in the rivalry between the East and West Coast hip-hop scenes with Shakur, now his former friend. And that was the thing. It was like... From what I understand
0: because the last podcast on the left did a great like four part series on this whole east coast west coast rivalry thing and they were all just playing characters like this right. wasn't like a this wasn't serious they were just having a good time and they thought like oh if we have this like rivalry it was all it, like it would, a it would big, be a good show it was like a one big play and i think it was like the okay if it, if it looks like we're having this big This beef. Big beef with each other. No press is, you know, bad press is better than no press. At least we're getting press and we're getting our name out there. So let's just have fun with this. Which
1: it kind of worked because there was a ton of hip hop out then.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, it got taken too far. Yeah. Like it went one step too far and then all of a sudden it wasn't a game anymore.
1: Yeah. Because, I mean, that really sucks. Like Shakur and Tupac before this... I'm sorry, Shakur and Wallace were real tight before this by all accounts. And then all of a sudden it's like, we not friends no more. Like, okay.
0: Yeah. It, and it became like a turf war kind of thing. Right. And then the diss track
1: started. So. Yep. It's coming. Anyways. In an interview with Vibe in, which is another magazine, in April 1995, while serving time in Clinton Correctional Facility, Shakur... Accused Uptown Records founder Andre Harrell, Sean Combs, and Wallace of having prior knowledge of a robbery that resulted in him being shot five times and losing thousands of dollars worth of jewelry on the night of November thirtieth, nineteen ninety four.
0: And I do get into that in my episode.
1: So yeah, I don't. That's all I have in this. So <laughs> I'm not. Oh, stepping we're
0: on, gonna go deeper.
1: I'm not stepping on toes. I'm just <clears throat> look putting the biggie. background in. Look, biggie. I'm just putting the background in. I'm not in, stepping on your toes. I know you're going to talk about it. Chill.
0: This is a southern Midwest throwdown. Mm-hmm.
1: Though Wallace and his entourage were in the same Manhattan based recording studio at this at the time of the shooting. They denied the accusation. Wallace said it just happened to be a coincidence that he meaning secure was in the studio. He just he couldn't really say who really had something to do with it at the time. So he just kind of leaned the blame on me. In 2012, a man named Dexter Isaac, serving a life sentence for unrelated crimes, claimed that he attacked Shakur that night and that the robbery was orchestrated by entertainment industry executive and former drug trafficker James Rosemond. Following his release from prison, Shakur signed to Death Row Records on October 15, 1995. This made Bad Boy Records and Death Row business rivals and thus intensified the quarrel. Wallace began recording his second studio album in September 1995, over 18 months in New York City, Trinidad, and Los Angeles. The recording was interrupted by injury, legal disputes, and a highly publicized hip-hop dispute, all which will kind of start becoming clear soon enough. However, during this time, Wallace also worked with pop singer Michael Jackson on the album History. And I need to put this out here. A little bit, because I'm going to have some fun facts and I'm going to have some not-so-fun facts. And uh, I'm sorry. So this is a not-so-fun fact. Lil C's later claimed that while Wallace met Jackson, C's was forced to stay behind with Wallace citing that he did not, quote, trust Michael with kids following the 1993 sexual abuse allegations against Jackson. However, engineer John Van Nest. And producer Dallas Austin recalled the sessions differently, saying that Wallace was eager to meet Jackson and nearly burst into tears upon doing so. So believe what you will. On March 23rd, 1996, Wallace was arrested outside a Manhattan nightclub for chasing and threatening to kill two fans seeking autographs, smashing the windows of their taxi cab and punching one of them. He pleaded guilty to second degree harassment and was sentenced to 100 hours of community service. In mid 1996, he was arrested at his home in Teaneck, New Jersey for drug and weapons possession charges. In June of 1996, Shakir released Hit 'em Up, a diss track in which he claimed to have had sex with Faith Evans, who was estranged from Wallace at the time, and that Wallace had copied his style and image. It is a harsh diss track. Oh, yeah. It is like the king of diss tracks. Yup. Wallace referenced the first claim on Jay-Z's Brooklyn's Finest, in which he raps, If Faye have twins, she'd probably have two pox. Get it? Two pox, (laughs) was the lyric line. (laughs) However, he did not directly respond to the track, stating in a 1997 radio interview that it was not his style to respond. You know what? Good.
0: Good. Yeah.
1: Like, he'll make a joke, but he's not going to... He wasn't going to go back and forth with Tupac, basically, Mm. is what he's saying. But I'll get to some other things and speculations later. Shakur was shot multiple times in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas on September seventh, 1996, and died six days later, which, again, we're going to talk a little more detail about this in the next episode, but I need to lay it down here like basics for reference. Rumors of Wallace's involvement with Shakur's murder... In a 2002 Los Angeles Times series titled Who Killed Tupac Shakur based on police reports and multiple sources, Chuck Phillips reported that the shooting was carried out by a Compton gang, the Southside Crips, to avenge a beating by Shakur hours earlier and that Wallace had paid for the gun. Los Angeles Times editor Mark DeVoyzen. Mark- yeah, you got me. Yeah. Mm. Mark DeVoyzen wrote... Phillips' story has withstood all challenges to its accuracy and remains the definitive account of the Shakur slaying. Wallace's family denied the report, producing documents to show that he was in New York and New Jersey at the time. However, the New York Times called the documents inconclusive, stating, quote, The pages purport to be three computer printouts from Daddy's house, indicating that Wallace was in the studio recording a song called Nasty Boy on the night Shakur was shot. They indicate that Wallace wrote half the session, was in and out, sat around, and laid down a ref, shorthand for a reference vocal, the equivalent of a first take, quote, but nothing indicates when the documents were created. And Lewis Alfred, the recording engineer, listed on the sheets and in an interview that he remembered recording the song with Wallace in a late night session, not during the day. He could not recall the date of the session, but said it was likely not the night Shakur was shot. We would have heard about it, Mr. Alford said, end quote.
0: And the other thing is, there is some limited video, which I'm going to get into a lot more because there's a lot more conspiracies and weird things that happen with Tupac's death. But even with the limited security footage that they've got, Biggie's not anywhere on that. Like, no. I mean, he wasn't in... I don't think he was in Vegas that night.
1: Well, yeah, even if he wasn't... Even if he maybe wasn't in studio... And that particular moment in time in New York, he wasn't in Vegas. Yeah. That much has been established.
0: And I don't ever, like, I don't think that's ever been an idea that Biggie killed him. It was more figureheads and representation being taken out as opposed to personal beef. Because they did used to be friends. Right. So I don't think Biggie killed Tupac.
1: I have my own theories. I have no theories. I just have what I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think he did it, but again, as you'll start realizing as we get later in this episode and then the next episode, there's just so much confusion, so much speculation, so many conspiracy theories, so much involved with these that like it's still unsolved. Like nobody's figured it out. There's still unsolved murders. Evans remembered her husband calling her on the night of Shakur's death and crying from shock. She said, quote, I think it's fair to say he was probably afraid, given everything that was going on at that time and all the hype that was put on this so-called beef that he didn't really have in his heart against anyone. Wayne Barrow, Wallace's co-manager at the time, said Wallace was recording the track Nasty Girl the night Shakur was shot. Shortly after Shakur's death, he met with Snoop Dogg, who claimed that Wallace played the song Somebody Gotta Die For Him, in which Snoop Dogg was mentioned and declared he never hated Shakur. On October 29th, 1996, Evans gave birth to Wallace's son, Christopher C.J. Wallace Jr. The following month, Junior Mafia member Lil' Kim released her debut album, Hardcore, under Wallace's direction while the two were having a supposed love affair. Lil' Kim recalled being Wallace's biggest fan and his pride and joy. In a 2012 interview, Lil' Kim said Wallace had prevented her from making a remix of the Jodeci single Love You for Life by locking her in a room. I don't know how this has anything to do with anything. I just found it. So if it doesn't make any sense, LD, you can cut it out. But.
0: And I think Lil' Kim actually went to prison for some time because of something that went down in front of a recording studio. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it's...
1: But regarding, I mean, regarding the Jodeci single, according to her, Wallace said that she was not going to do, that she was not, quote, going to do, going to go do no song with them, likely because of the group's affiliation with Tupac and Death Row Records. I mean, he picked a side. But again, did he or is this all just some game that they're making up and playing? Well, at this point, and he's, everybody's he's dead.
0: In. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's a game anymore.
1: Right. During recording for his second album, Life After Death, Wallace and Lil C's were arrested for smoking pot in public and had their car repossessed. Wallace chose a Chevy Lumina rental car as a substitute despite Lil C's' objections. The car had brake problems, but Wallace dismissed them and ended up colliding with a rail, shattering Wallace's left leg and Lil C's' jaw. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Wallace spent months in the hospital following the accident. He was temporarily confined to a wheelchair, forced to use a cane, and had to complete physical therapy. Despite his hospitalization, he continued to work on the album. The accident was referred to in the lyrics of Long Kiss Goodnight. And quote, you still tickle me. I used to be as strong as Ripplebee, till Lil C's crippled me. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's kind of funny. And it works. Right. <laughs> In January 1997, Wallace was ordered to pay $41,000 in damages following an incident involving a friend of a concert promoter who claimed Wallace and his entourage beat him after a dispute in May of 1995. He faced criminal assault charges for the incident, which remains unsolved, but all robbery charges were dropped. Following the events, Wallace spoke of a desire to focus on his peace of mind and his family and friends. So that was in January... One month before his passing, because in February, well, not one month, sorry, two months, because in February, Wallace traveled to California to promote Life After Death and record a music video for its lead single, Hypnotize.
0: Such a good song.
1: Yeah. Hang on. You know, play it. So here's a little bit
0: of Hypnotize.
3: Detroit players, Tim's for my hooligans in Brooklyn. Dead okay. right, if the head right, biggie there, air night. Papa been smooth since days of under Never lose, never choose to. Bruise, cruise, who? Do something to us, oh, talk, go mm-hmm. through us. Girls want to us, wanna do us, screw us. Who us? Yeah, Papa and pump, <laughs> Close like Sparsky and Hutch, stick to clutch. Yeah, I squeeze three at your cherry and 3 Bang every MC Take that. easily. Take that. Recently, uh-huh. niggas frontin' ain't saying nothing, so I just my peace biggie, my piece, with the jesus peace my piece, packing, who it. It, it. Nigga, it. that bullshit, we, we want want it.
0: Biggie, biggie, biggie. you see sometimes your and i just love your. Friend. <laughs> I know that clip went on for a little while longer than we normally play a song, but we,
1: we were doing we were just trying to get <laughs> like, to the biggie 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 and dancing on our couch. <laughs> I I was I was dancing. Yeah. That's bling. the cause did I already sing that earlier, the Biggie Biggie Biggie. Can't yes. you see? <laughs> but it's just a good song. It's just it's so a great good. song. I love that song.
0: Takes me back to like being a kid again.
1: Sake, like takes I was me like back
0: to save the last dance. I was like sixteen. <laughs> I was like sixteen years old when that song came out, so that was like my time. It was my time.
1: On March fifth, he gave a radio interview at the Dog House on KYLD in San Francisco. In the interview, he stated that he had hired a security detail since he feared for his safety, but that he was, but that this was because he was a celebrity figure in general and not specifically because he was a rapper. On March eighth. Wallace presented an award to Tony Braxton at the 11th annual Soul Train Music Awards in Los Angeles and was booed by some of the audience. What? Why? So rough. Well, because. As a presenter, you're booed? (laughs) Because people think that at this point, people are thinking that he was involved with Tupac's death. Got it. So, and he's on their turf. He's in LA. He then attended an after party hosted by Vibe. And Quest Records at the Peterson Automotive Museum. Which is a really cool museum, by the way. Have you been there?
0: Is that in Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah, I think. Well, I've driven past it. I've never been in. Oh, it's so cool.
1: But so anyways, so this after, the Soul Train after party is being hosted at this museum. Guests included his wife, Faith Evans. Aaliyah. Oh, I miss her. I miss her too. Oh, we will be doing an episode on her. Yes. Sean. But that will be in September. Okay. Sean Combs and members of the Crips and Bloods gangs. I feel like that's just asking for trouble. The next day at 1230 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, after the fire department closed the party early due to overcrowding, Wallace left with his entourage and two GMC Suburbans to return to his hotel. He traveled in the front passenger seat with Damien D. Rock Butler, Lil C.'s, and driver Gregory G. Money Young. Combs traveled in the other vehicle with three bodyguards. The two trucks were trailed by a Chevrolet Blazer carrying Bad Boy Records Director of Security Paul Offord. By 12.45 a.m., the streets were crowded with people leaving the party. Wallace's truck stopped at a red light 50 yards from the Peterson Automotive Museum and a black Chevy Impala pulled up alongside it. The Impala's driver, an unidentified African-American man dressed in a blue suit and bow tie, rolled down his window, drew a 9 millimeter blue steel pistol, and opened fire on Wallace's car. Four bullets hit Wallace, and his entourage subsequently rushed him to Cedar sinai Medical Center. He arrived in full cardiac arrest, and doctors had to perform an emergency thoracotomy, but he was pronounced dead at 1.15 a.m. He was 24 years old. That's so sad. Yeah. Wallace's funeral was held at the Frank E. Campbell Funeral Chapel in Manhattan on March 18th. There were around 350 mourners at the funeral, including Lil C's, Queen Latifah, Flava Flav, Mary J. Blige, Lil Kim, Run DMC, DJ cool Herc, Treach, Busta Rhymes, salt n Peppa, DJ Spinderella, Foxy Brown, and Sister Soldier. After the funeral, his body was cremated and the ashes were given to his family. Immediately following the shooting, reports surfaced linking Wallace's murder with that of Shakur six months earlier due to similarities in the drive-by shootings and the highly publicized East Coast-West Coast hip-hop feud of which Shakur and Wallace had been central figures. Shortly after Wallace's death, Los Angeles Times writer Chuck Phillips and Matt Late reported that the key suspect in this murder was a member of the Southside Crips acting in service of a personal financial motive rather than on the gang's behalf. The investigation stalled, however, and no one was formally charged. In a 2002 book by Randall Sullivan called Labyrinth, information was compiled about the murders of Wallace and Shakur based on information provided by retired LAPD detective Russell Poole. In the book, Sullivan accused Suge Knight, co-founder of Death Row Records, and a known Bloods affiliate, of conspiring with corrupt LAPD officer David Mack to kill Wallace and make both deaths appear to be the result of the rap rivalry. The book stated that one of Mack's alleged associates, Amir Mohammed, was the hitman who killed Wallace. The theory was based on evidence provided by an informant and Muhammad's general resemblance to the facial composite generated during the investigation. Fun fact! Right now? Yes, because it's needed.
0: Oh, God. And see, here's the thing is like, I don't talk a lot when it comes to like the actual death part, because I feel like there's a reverence that we need to hold on to. But well, this is the investigation, this I is mean, yeah,
1: like he's already dead. Oh, this I know. I'm the just investigation. I'm
0: saying like when we're talking about the actual events around it, in- including the investigation, i try not to talk that much, but <sighs> it
1: bums me out. I say fun fact. It's not really a fun fact. It's an unfun fact. Because my fun facts are weak. And most of them in this episode are not fun facts. In 2002, filmmaker Nick Broomfield released a documentary, Biggie and Tupac, based on the information from the book Labyrinth. The New York Times described Broomfield's low-budget documentary as a largely speculative and circumstantial account relying on flimsy evidence, failing to present counter-evidence, or question sources. (laughs) And the only reason I brought that up Like, I figured, I felt like it should be noted, and since I'm talking about the book anyways, that it was based on, you know. (sighs) So, anyways, back to the investigation. An article published in Rolling Stone by Sullivan in December 2005 accused the LAPD of not fully investigating links with death row records based on Poole's evidence. Sullivan claimed that Combs failed to fully cooperate with the investigation and, according to Poole, encouraged the staff of Bad Boy Records to do the same. The accuracy of the the article was later challenged in a letter by the assistant managing editor of the Los Angeles Times who accused Sullivan of using shoddy tactics. Sullivan, in response, quoted the lead attorney of the Wallace estate calling the newspaper a co-conspirator in the cover-up. So basically, what is happening right now with all this investigation and all of these, like, back-end things happening with, like, the book Labyrinth coming through and, like, all these speculations... Basically now there's a whole other rivalry across the media about whether the LAPD did their job or not, whether these leads would pan out, whether these things happened, what the connection would be. like it's basically just a jumbled cluster fluff of <laughs> crap. That was a great word. You like my my cluster fluff? You like my swear dodge?
0: That was incredible.
1: <laughs> well, it is. It's a cluster fluff.
0: Oh, I love it.
1: Because <laughs> it then continues. Like, basically, I don't know. Like, the author of this book is talking with officers, and they're backing him up, but then the media is like, you cray. Like, <laughs> and then he's like, no, I'm not. You cray. And I feel like it's, it's almost ludicrous at this point
0: no way is it ludicrous or
1: it's not luda it's ludicrous (laughs) it's i feel like it's kind of like crazy
0: not the rapper from the 90s
1: yes i feel like it's kind of a schoolyard battle between them now of like i'm not stupid you stupid no you're stupid no you're stupid shut up not on you like i feel like that's what it kind of digresses to (laughs) And it's very confusing. So I think it's important in talking about Sullivan's assertion that the LA Times was involved in the cover-up with the LAPD. It's important to note that there actually were conflicting theories of the murder that were offered in different sections of the LA Times. So, for instance, the Metro section of the Times wrote that police suspected a connection between Wallace's death and and the Rampart police corruption scandal consistent with Sullivan and Poole's theory. But Chuck Phillips, a staff writer for the business section of the Times, found Muhammad, who was their, like, lead suspect for a while because he resembled the drawing. He found him through an ad for his brokerage business running in the Times. Muhammad, who was not an official suspect at the time, came forward to clear his name. And then, like... There was a whole bunch on this that I cut out because it just got it did it just completely digressed to you're stupid no you're stupid no you no you and retractions and all this stuff like it's it, it got messy so basically
0: the reason why you cut all this info out is it just digressed into mudslinging and name calling yeah. and redactions and retractions yeah and, so it was yeah. just
1: a really messy because we're now. I mean this is now around 2005. So it's just going forever like it's just continuous off and on for what is that? 7 years. Like by cuz now I'm coming to 2005. And I think the I think the last thing was in 2000 was in 2000 they printed a retraction to clear Muhammad. Dude, we discussed this last episode. I cannot do
0: math. Don't ask me, unless it's an even year to an even year, I don't know.
1: Okay, I'm telling you. Okay, so 1997, biggie is shot. Okay, and then you take that to 2000, so that's three years. So that's three years. And then this is 95, where they're 2005. Still are, where they're still arguing a suspect. So that's eight years. Yes. So now, but there's like a lull between 2000 and 2005, um, because then... 2005 a story by Phillips showed that the main informant for the Poole Sullivan theory was a schizophrenic with admitted memory lapses known as psycho Mike who confessed to hearsay. So basically it's just, they have, they have nothing. They're trying, they're trying to get leads. All these people are coming up, trying to like make leads, make something make sense. And they just, they don't have anything. And it's messy. So I can understand how this is still unsolved. Because there's just too many, there's too many arrows. There's too many ways to follow that they still come up short. Well, you have
0: the gangs. You've got the producers. You've got the East Coast, West Coast. You've got possibly corrupt cops. You've got so much stuff that you have to wade through. Right, right and you don't know if it's retribution or an act that Biggie did or like it's so convoluted right. that to be able to swim through half of the stuff you have to figure out to the point why yeah. if you could probably if you if you could figure out what exactly if even if it was just if it was retribution or if it was an act he did Then maybe you could just narrow some of this down, but like this will never get solved unless there's a deathbed confession from the person that pulled the trigger. You're probably not going to get an answer, and even if there is a deathbed confession from the person who says they pulled the trigger, you don't know if they're telling the truth.
1: Yeah, I mean it just it just keeps going. I mean, because that's just it. You've got now you finding out now you're now we're finding out. Okay, our main informant for the Poole-Sullivan theory from Labyrinth the main informant is a schizophrenic who then confessed to hearsay basically according to John Cook of Brill's content noted that the Phillips article now demolished the Poole-Sullivan theory of Wallace's murder because your main informant basically said oh yeah no I lied or I can't be trusted because I Have no idea what I said. God, this is so frustrating. Or I have no idea what I saw, you know. So it's nuts. So, yeah. Then in the 2000 book, The Murder of Biggie Smalls, investigative journalist and author Kathy Scott suggested that Wallace and Shakur's murders might have been the result of the East Coast-West Coast feud. Everybody's speculating that. So you're not bringing anything new to the table, Kathy. Thanks, Kathy. And motivated by financial gain for the record companies because the rappers were worth more dead than alive. Now that is something... Okay, sorry for my... I I was a little too harsh in my sarcastic thank you. Because actually that now does tend to... That starts making a little sense. But then it doesn't make sense because as you're about to find out... Biggie's final album was huge. He was just launching. So he would have been worth a bunch of money at some point. But he would have like, had to
0: on. he would have had to have had a large catalog of out uh, like of things that he had pre-recorded prior to his death to actually make that. Oh wait, I get there. But like that's the whole He's got
1: two albums worth of crap pre-recorded. But Tupac has like nineteen. Yeah, I know. But like I say, he's got a bunch. So that's why, like, none of these theories make any sense. That's why This is why I'm saying I don't think that it has anything to do with the rivalry. I don't even think they're related. And if they are, I think they're related for a very different reason than everybody thinks. You are getting so hot over this. Well, because it's so frustrating, and I've been sitting in this like, y'all are so confusing, and you make no sense, and right now you're just being dumb. Whew breathing breathing. i can't
0: wait till next week when you blow your friggin lid (laughs)
1: because then i
0: throw in all
1: the tupac stuff just so here we are now in 2006 so all these books have come out all these theories and all the conversation continues for almost a decade after he passes away and it's understandable because it's frustrating And it was a big deal. It's still one of the most famous unsolved cases in L.A., possibly the country. It's bonkers. So now we're in July 2006. The criminal investigation into Wallace's murder was reopened to look for new evidence to help the city defend the civil lawsuits brought by the Wallace family, which I'm going to get to that in a second. So now they've reopened it. It's almost a decade later, which is good. I mean, it's a cold case. They should be trying to find new angles because it is really sad that they haven't figured out what all this boiled down to. Retired LAPD detective Greg, Greg Kading, who worked for three years on a gang task force that included the Wallace case, alleges that the rapper was shot by Wardell Pucci- Fouse, which oh, hang on, I got to finish the sentence before I can get frustrated again.
0: Like, okay, I'm gonna so, hang on, I'm gonna interject really quick. You guys, it's been edited out at this point, but fun fact about TJ when she gets super frustrated, she starts to burp. Well, and I think she can't, just, can't stop burping because she's inhaling too much.
1: Yeah. Basically, I had I've got soda and I'm inhaling too much and I'm frustrated and I'm waving my arms around and it's so I'm just swallowing air. So then I keep burping. (laughs) So, yeah. So Kadeen is now saying that the rapper was shot by Poochie, a Mob Piru gang member and an associate of Suge Knight who died on July 24th, 2003, after being shot in the back while riding his motorcycle in Compton. So Poochie's been shot, but now you're trying to blame these murders on Poochie and Suge Knight. Katie believes that Knight hired Poochie via his girlfriend, and this is in quotations, so I'm not really sure why, Teresa Swan, to kill Wallace to avenge the death of Shakur, who... Cady alleges was killed under the orders of Combs.
0: That is so So convoluted.
1: Yeah. Basically, nobody knows why. They're all trying to figure out motive.
0: Wait, wait, wait. What part was in quotations? Was it Teresa or Swan?
1: Teresa Swan. Her full name was in quotations, so I'm so confused.
0: Maybe that was like her. Maybe
1: it was an alias. Yeah, maybe it's an alias. Yeah. Maybe they changed her name to protect her. Possibly. But yeah. Like, uh, basically, I have a feeling that part of the issue here is that they're trying to find motives and they're not finding a solid motive. And then they find a motive that they think fits and then they follow it and then it craps out and it's a dead end again. Like, I completely understand their frustration. I'm frustrated. This is crazy. But also, if these things are coming from. If these are coming from Suge Knight and Sean Combs and all this and like these labels and all that, they got protection all over the place and they made evidence disappear and they went through other people to make it happen. So we'll probably never know what the heck happened. So as I mentioned, I'm coming back to this lawsuit, which is the reason why they reopened the case in 2006 because in March 2006, Wallace's mother, Valletta, filed a wrongful death claim against the city of Los Angeles based on the evidence championed by Poole in Labyrinth. They claimed the LAPD had sufficient evidence to arrest the assailant but failed to use it. David Mack and Amir Mohammed, aka Harry Billips, were originally named as defendants in the civil suit but were dropped shortly before the trial after the LAPD and FBI dismissed them as suspects. The case came for trial before a jury on June 21st, 2005. On the eve of the trial, a key witness who was expected to testify, Kevin Hackey, revealed that he suffered memory lapses due to psychiatric medications. He had previously testified to knowledge of involvement between Knight, Mack, and Muhammad, but later said, that the Wallace attorneys had altered his declarations to include words he never said. Hackey took full blame for filing a false declaration. Several days into the trial, the plaintiff's attorney disclosed to the court and opposing counsel that he had received a telephone call from someone claiming to be an LAPD officer and provided detailed information about the existence of evidence concerning the Wallace murder. The court directed The court directed the city to conduct a thorough investigation which uncovered previously undisclosed evidence, much of which was in the desk or cabinet of Detective Stephen Katz, the lead detective in the Wallace investigation. The document centered around interviews by numerous police officers of an incarcerated informant who had been a cellmate of imprisoned Rampart officer Rafael Perez for some extended period of time. He reported that Perez had told him about his and Max's involvement in death row records and their activities at the Peterson Automotive Museum the night of Wallace's murder. As a result of the newly discovered evidence, the judge declared a mistrial and awarded the Wallace family its attorney's fees. So now we have yet more new things coming up. And so the Wallace family has every right to be like, what the deuce? Okay, because this isn't convoluted enough.
0: How did they find the paperwork in the police officer's drawers? Right. Also, I don't I don't know how much weight I put on jailhouse confessions or like informants right. because
1: they have a reason. But he was a police officer. He was a Rampart police officer that was nope. in serving time.
0: Yeah, but he, he was the one that was talking. Right. But I believe that if a, a jailhouse informant...
1: There's motivation. There's
0: motivation for them to
1: to not be
0: truthful honest, about yeah. something and I mean cuz there's something in it for them they could get time off they could get extra perks and things like that you know and mm-hmm. in to be the one that like quote unquote cracks the case on who killed biggie that would be huge like your your clout would raise like right. so for me the jailhouse informant thing really it might work sometimes but for me it doesn't hold a lot of
1: weight right well so then they're not done so that Trial went to mistrial. However, on April 16th, 2007, the relatives of Wallace filed a second wrongful death lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles. The suit also named two LAPD officers in the center of the investigation into the rampart scandal Perez, the guy who all of a sudden is like, oh, yeah, I totally know about that, and Nino Durden. According to the claim, Perez, an alleged affiliate of Death Row Records, admitted to LAPD officers that he and Mack, who was not named in the lawsuit, conspired, quote, quote, conspired to murder and participated in the murder of Christopher Wallace, end quote. The Wallace family said the LAPD, quote, consciously concealed Rafael Perez's involvement in the murder of Wallace, end quote. United States District Judge Florence Marie Cooper granted summary judgment to the city on December 17, 2007, finding that the Wallace family had not complied with a California law that required the family to give notice of its claim to the state within six months of Wallace's death. The Wallace family refiled the suit, dropping the state law claims on May 27, 2008. The suit against the city of Los Angeles was finally dismissed in 2010. It was described by the New York Times as, quote, one of the longest running and most contentious celebrity cases in history. The Wallace suit had asked for $500 million from the city. In alluding to Sullivan and Poole's theory that formed the basis of the Wallace family's lawsuit, the New York Times wrote, quote, A cottage industry of criminal speculation has sprung up around the case with documentaries, books, and a stream of lurid magazine articles implicating gangs, crooked cops, and a cross-country rap rivalry. End quote. Noting that everything associated with Wallace's death had been, quote, big business. Like, yeah. It's all frickin'... It's nuts. This poor guy and this poor family. So, yeah. They're now... So, like, now the Wallace family is trying for four years... To reach some sort of peace in basically suing California and the LAPD and everything and trying to just find some peace with that because of all of this mess. And I don't necessarily blame the city or the, the police or anything, but like. Now, it-
0: before you say that, though, you have to remember, this event was not far removed from the Rodney King riots, which happened in 1992 which uncovered a ton of police corruption. That's true. So (laughs) it's not like it's unfounded. And look, here's the thing.
1: Oh, I'm not saying it's unfounded at all. Like, let me make that really clear. I'm not saying it's unfounded. I'm not saying, I'm not trivializing it at all because they actually clearly did uncover corruption within this case. So, and, you know, people being... (laughs) people being able to hide things or be bought out or whatever. Like they found they found evidence of corruption within the case which is why the family is trying to file suit. But unfortunately the details led them to mistrials and dismissals. And before anybody gets heated I'm going to make a statement
0: and this doesn't reflect TJ at all. But I understand that there are good cops and that there are bad cops. And I, I will have to say this, and you guys can at me, but, you know, there are good cops out there that are willing to put themselves in the path of danger and put themselves in the path of harm. And there are bad cops out there. And I have my eyes opened up enough to know that, but I still do trust in police.
1: Yeah, so, and because basically we're sitting here trying to still figure this out, In December 2012, 15 years after his death, the LAPD finally released the autopsy results conducted on Wallace's body to generate new leads. And here we go again with the unfun facts. The release was criticized by the longtime lawyer of his estate, Perry Sanders Jr., who objected to an autopsy. Like, why? Why? Why would you object to this if it could generate new leads? Come on. That's a little suspect to me. The 23-page report, 23 pages, showed that three of the four shots were not fatal. Because remember, he was shot four times. The first bullet hit his left forearm and traveled down to his wrist. The second hit him in the back, missing all vital organs, and exited through his left shoulder. And the third hit his left thigh and exited through his inner thigh. The report said that the third bullet struck, quote, the left side of the scrotum, causing a very shallow 3-8-inch linear laceration. Only the final shot was fatal. It entered through his right hip, struck his colon, liver, heart, and left lung before stopping in his left shoulder. Further in the report, there was no evidence of drugs or alcohol in his system at the time of his death, which, you know, he did say. He wanted to kind of, like, just focus on himself and his family and like finding peace so it's very surprising since he was at an after party for an award show but you know kudos at the time of his death he was six foot two weighing 395 pounds with a tattoo on his right forearm that read the lord is my light and my salvation so you know that's 15 years after he passed and we're still here another five years later that after both LAPD and FBI have looked into this case several times, no arrests have been made for either Biggie or Tupac's murders, and it does remain, and Biggie's does remain, one of LA's most well-known unsolved homicides. So let's move away from that, because I can't with that anymore. Let's talk about Biggie's last album. Yay! 16 days after his death, Wallace's double-disc second album was released as planned, With the shortened title of Life After Death. And I couldn't find what it was supposed to be. Because this says shortened title. But regardless, it released as Life After Death. And hit number one on the Billboard 200 charts. After making a premature appearance at number 176 due to street date violations. So people were trying to sell the album before it even came out. Or before it was supposed to officially release. And so it showed up early at number 176 before it was officially released and debuted at number one. Wallace mostly rapped on his songs in a deep tone described by Rolling Stone as a thick jaunty grumble. (laughs) (laughs) Which went... I love the word jaunty. Right? (laughs) Jaunty grumble is wonderful. I feel like that should be the name of a gnome or something. That's my new band name. Write that down. Jaunty grumble. There you go. Which went deeper on life after death. He was often accompanied on songs with ad-libs from Sean Combs, but this album featured a much wider range of guests and producers than its predecessor, Ready to Die, including Jay-Z, Lil' Kim, Mace, Bone thugs and harmony R. Kelly, and others. I love Bone thugs and harmony <laughs> Right. But collaborations were a huge trend at that time, too. Oh, yeah. Like, Call-outs,
0: collaborations. like Yeah. The, I mean... If I could find well, if I could find a song today that didn't have the word featuring, (laughs) it would be such a
1: rarity. Yeah, I mean it's kind of come back around, and it's I think it's always been a thing in the hip hop community, especially because you know, too at that time you have rappers doing their thing, but then you have the hook artists singing the hooks, and you have you know then other featured artists coming in to rap and. And sing and...
0: And now there's a a shift in the musical landscape where the most popular like pop songs today actually have a third verse rap by a featured artist. Yeah. So, I mean, it's
1: it's still a thing. It's still a huge thing. You know. You're welcome from the 90s. (laughs) Yeah. The album gained strong reviews and in 2000 was certified diamond. Holy crap. That's like the highest. Hang on. The highest RIAA certification, yes, awarded, but, like, it is the highest RIAA certification. But I think this is the first instance where it was awarded to a solo hip-hop album.
0: That is awesome.
1: Yeah. From the way it reads, from my research, and again, I wish I had, like, another week to work on this and get everything out but there was so much out there and we must we we must give you content with
0: this case there's too much (laughs) i'm dead serious we could do an entire podcast specifically on the east coast west coast rivalry yeah we could do
1: i don't know about an entire podcast but we could definitely do like i mean it would be a limited series but yeah it could it could make its own thing for sure
0: Oh, yeah. There's just there's so much information. And I know that in my episode, I have to leave stuff out. So I know TJ is having to leave stuff out. So mm-hmm. don't remember, we've only got a certain amount of time to not only research, but record, edit and get this out in a timely manner. So right. some things have to be left out. And so unfortunately, to give you the goods for the
1: investigation and the lawsuits and all that,
0: we just had to pare it down to like the most important details.
1: Yeah. So back to the album, its lead single, Hypnotize, which we played you a little bit earlier, and we can't go down that rabbit hole again, otherwise we'll never finish today, was the last music video recording in which Wallace would participate. His biggest chart success was with his follow-up single, Mo Money Mo Problems, Mm -hmm. featuring Sean Combs under the rap alias at that time, Puff Daddy, and Mace.
3: No info for the DEA. Federal agents mad cause I'm flagrant. Tap myself and the phone in the basement. My team, Supreme, stay clean. Triple B, miracle dream. I'll be that. Catch a seat at all events. gats catching holsters, girls on shoulders. Play but I told you. Me and Mike's to me. Cruise too much. I lose too much. Step on stage. The girls boo too much. I guess it's like you on the lame dudes too much. Me, touch, never that. If I did, ain't no problem to get the gap. Where the true players that Throw your roadies in the sky. Wave inside the side and keep your hands high. like in your girl eye. Play it please. Lyric Glee. Bigger C. B-I-G-B. Flossing. Jig on the cover of Fortune.
1: So that was uh mo Money, Mo, mo Money, Mo Problems. Yeah. So both those singles, both Hypnotized and Mo Money, Mo Problems, reached... Number one in the Hot 100, making Wallace the first artist to achieve this feat posthumously. The third single, Sky's the Limit, featuring the band 112, was noted for its use of children in the music video, directed by Spike Jones, who were used to portray Wallace and his contemporaries, including Combs, Lil Kim, and Busta Rhymes. Spike Jones
0: is an awesome music video director. Like anything that he touches is awesome because he's done. The Beastie Boys, he's done Bjork, he's done, oh God, who else has he done? Uh, Beastie Boys, Bjork, he did Fat Boy Slam, like all of his just look like they have the Spike Jones stamp on it, and he's incredible. So I love that he was at the helm for that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Wallace was named Artist of the Year and Hypnotize Single of the Year by Spin Magazine in December 1997. So there's a lot of speculation on some of the other song lyrics containing feud references and subliminal disses across the album. I did some research. I have a lot of it and specific lyrics and why people say this and that and the other, but we are running long on the episode. Um, and it's just a lot of back and forth again of the playground. He said, she said, where some people will say, oh yeah, this is totally about this. And then someone will come in and say, no, it's not. So here's the thing. There's a great, great, great article that I used to research this in conjunction with the album page on Wikipedia. But the article was in XXL Magazine. It was their April 2003 edition. And the article is entitled The Making of Colon Life After Death. And you can look that up because I did. <laughs> and it it is on the web now. Like, might have been from a while ago, but it is living on their website. So you can 100% go and read that, and it'll give you all the detail that you could ever want. However, the one that I am going to say something about briefly on this, there was a track on Life After Death called You're Nobody Till Somebody Kills You. There's a lot on that that people say contain apparent jabs aimed at his rivals, including Shakur. Even though Biggie stated in a Spin Magazine interview that the song You're Nobody Till Somebody Kills You was not directed at Shakur, who at the time had been recently shot. Understand that song was probably recorded before his passing since Biggie passed away only six months after he did. So I want to just put point that out because I know a lot of people point at that song in particular and I don't really think that that's accurate or fair same goes with long kiss Goodnight." again a lot of people say that particularly the last two verses seem to be directed at Tupac and there is some lyrics that would indicate that they're about his passing again this is these were written before and probably recorded well before that incident so I don't want to color people's opinions there so moving on in mid 1997 Combs released his debut album, No Way Out, which featured Wallace on five songs, notably on the third single, Victory. The most prominent single from the album was I'll Be Missing You, featuring Combs, Faith Evans, and 112, which was dedicated to Wallace's memory. At the 1998 Grammy Awards, Life After Death and its first two singles received nominations in the rap category, but the album award was won by Combs No Way Out, and I'll Be Missing You won the award in the category of best rap performance by a duo or group in which Mo Money Mo Problems was nominated. And I do understand that because it was written and performed in honor of Biggie, so I can understand it winning out, but I have issues with this song, which I will get to momentarily. But for right now, we're going to play a little bit for you in case you're not familiar.
4: Can't imagine all the pain I feel. Give anything to hear half a breath. I know you're still living your life after death. Need to believe. My thoughts just can't define. Wish I could turn back the hands of
1: time. Us in Alright, so officially here. I mentioned before we played the song that I have issues with it. Just to clarify, I do not have issues with the sentiment. I do not have issues with it being a tribute to Biggie. I love that they put something together for him and that it was people that worked close with him and his wife. I love that. I even really enjoy the production of it. Here's what I don't like. Unfun fact. I'll Be Missing You is based on, If I'm sure you can hear it in the song, is based on a sample of the 1983 single Every Breath You Take by The Police. It also uses an interpolation of the Every Breath You Take melody sung by Biggie's widow, Faith Evans. While sampling is a big part of of the music industry in general these days and particularly in hip-hop and particularly at that time my issue is this permission was not given for use of the sample and police songwriter sting sued receiving 100 percent of the song royalties sting reportedly earns two thousand dollars a day from royalties for the track
0: yeah that must be nice yeah, I actually wanted to interject for just a second before anybody tries to at TJ because she used interpolations. Uh, it's it's actually in reference to using a melody or like some part of a melody from a previously recorded song, but re-recorded uh, the melody instead of sampling it. So it's often used when an artist or label who owns a piece of music declines the use of the license or the sample. Or if it's licensing a piece of music that's considered too costly.
1: Why would they at me for interpolation? Like, that's the Cause issue. Because they
0: could have thought you said, in like, you're trying to say interpretation. Maybe oh. for her interpretation of yeah. the lyrics. But Close it's enough. it's actually, like, a thing in music.
1: So, See, yes. Fun fact, the track also reuses... An- and I'm kind of torn if this is an unfun or a fun fact or just a continuation from the previous unfun fact. But The track also reuses the melody from the hymn, I'll Fly Away. That's the Faith Evans through line underneath. Mm-hmm. That... Which is so yeah. pretty. It's beautiful. But it's a hymn. So that one's probably okay. And so I'll I've, say fun fact. I
0: feel like that. if that's, I feel like hymns are mostly in the public domain.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. That's fine. Fun fact number two, Diddy's Verses were composed by rapper Sauce Money. I love that name. Yeah. There are several different versions of this song. One being an extended version where there's a choir at the beginning, another without the choir, and an instrumental version. In 1996, Wallace started putting together a hip-hop supergroup, The Commission, which consisted of himself, Jay-Z, Lil C's, combs and charlie baltimore the commission was mentioned by wallace in the lyrics of what's beef on life after death and victory from no way out but a commission album was never completed a track on duets the final chapter what you want the commission featuring jay-z was based on the group in december 1999 bad boy records released born again the album consisted of previously unreleased material mixed with new guest appearances including many artists Wallace had never collaborated with during his actual lifetime. It gained some positive reviews, but received criticism for its unlikely pairings. The source describing it as compiling some of the most awkward collaborations of his career. (laughs) Oof. Nevertheless, the album sold 2 million copies. Wallace appeared on Michael Jackson's 2001 album, Invincible. Over the course of time, his vocals were heard on hit songs such as Foolish, Again, this is a song title, not my words, Realist Niggas by Ashanti in 2002, and the song Runnin', Dyin' to Live with Tupac the following year. In 2005, Duets, the final chapter, continued the pattern started on Born Again, which was criticized for the lack of significant vocals by Wallace on some of its songs. Its lead single, Nasty Girl, became Wallace's first UK number one single. Hey. Hey combs and Valletta wallace have stated the album will be the last release primarily featuring new material i feel like these albums were also big contributors to the conspiracy theories that biggie and tupac are still alive somewhere and that they're just like recording on the slide to release new stuff that was a that was a thing right like oh yeah in the early 2000s that was a thing is everybody's like they're not dead they're still releasing music they're still releasing music they ain't dead you're telling me all that was recorded before they died? I don't think so. Like, Yeah, no. Yeah, they do. The debut album, The King and I, featuring Faith Evans and Notorious B.I.G., was released on May 19, 2017, which largely contained previously unreleased music. I know that there was no segue back to that. I just went there. Considered one of the best rappers of all time, Wallace was described by AllMusic as the savior of East Coast hip-hop. The Source magazine named Wallace the greatest rapper of all time in its 150th issue in 2002. In 2003, when XXL magazine asked several hip-hop artists to list their five favorite MCs, Wallace's name appeared on more rappers' lists than anyone else. Wow, that just that speaks to his legacy. Right? In 2006, MTV ranked him at number three on their list of the greatest MCs of all time, calling him possibly, quote, the most skillful ever on the mic. Then why wasn't he number one? Right? <laughs> Segway. Editors of About dot com. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like how my segue was just Segway? <laughs> you just yelled the word segue. That is not a segue. Well, I think it should be, because sometimes I don't have a segue. Editors of About dot com ranked him number three on their list of the top fifty MCs of our time, nineteen eighty seven to two thousand seven, qualifying. In 2012, The Source ranked him number three on their list of the top 50 lyrical leaders of all time. Fair. Rolling Stone has referred to him as the greatest rapper that ever lived. Wow. Okay. Big swing from Rolling Stone. I like it. In 2015, Billboard named Wallace as the greatest rapper of all time as well. Since his death, Wallace's lyrics have been sampled and quoted by a variety of hip-hop, R&B, and pop artists, including Jay-Z, 50 Cent, Alicia Keys, Fat Joe. Oh, Fat Joe. I, I just I <laughs> forgot about Fat Joe. I lost it too. I'm so sorry, Fat Joe. We love you. Nellie Ja Rule. Yeah. Eminem, Lil Wayne, The Game, Clinton Sparks, Michael Jackson, and Usher. Oh, Usher. I still have a massive crush on Usher. On August twenty eighth, two thousand five, at the two thousand five MTV Video Music Awards, or VMAs as they like to call them. Sean Combs then using the rap alias P. Diddy, and Snoop Dogg paid tribute to Wallace. An orchestra played while the vocals from Juicy and Warning played on the arena speakers. In September 2005, VH1 held its second annual hip-hop honors with a tribute to Wallace headlining the show. Wallace had begun to promote a clothing line called Brooklyn Mint, which was to produce plus-size clothing but fell dormant after he died. In 2004, his managers Mark Pitts and Wayne Barrow launched the clothing line with help from Jay-Z, selling t-shirts with images of Wallace on them. A portion of the proceeds go to the Christopher Wallace Foundation and to Jay-Z's Sean Carter Scholarship Foundation. That's, see, that's
0: that's one of those things is just a yeah. very cool thing.
1: I like that. In 2005, Valletta Wallace hired branding and licensing agency, Wicked Cow Entertainment to guide the estate's licensing efforts. Wallace branded products on the market, including action figures, blankets, and cell phone content. All right. Dude, I kind of
0: want a Biggie Smalls action figure. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That would be so cool. That'd be kind of fun. That'd be a good addition to the pod loft.
1: There you go. Somebody find one. Send it to us. (laughs) Give us gifts. (laughs) The Christopher Wallace Memorial Foundation holds an annual black-tie dinner, I love this, B.I.G. Night Out, to raise funds for children's school equipment and to honor Wallace's memory. And guess what? Fun fact! For this particular event, because it's a children's schools charity, B.I.G. is also said to stand for Books Instead of Guns. There is a large portrait mural of Wallace as Mao Zedong on Fulton Street in Brooklyn, a half mile west from Wallace's old block. A fan petitioned to have the corner of Fulton Street and St. James Place near Wallace's childhood home renamed in his honor, garnering support from local businesses and attracting more than 560 signatures. Unfun fact, this was contested by a few members of the Brooklyn Community Board. Time prohibited me from determining if the street was renamed or not, so I'm gonna hope that it was. Let me know if you know and I don't. A large portrait of Wallace features prominently in the Netflix series Luke Cage, due to the fact that he served as muse for the creation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's version of Marvel Comics character Cornell Cottonmouth Stokes. Okay, that is just badass. Isn't that cool?
0: <laughs> that is awesome.
1: Oh, I thought, and, and I thought uh, you would like that little piece of trivia.
0: I do because also, do you know that uh, my patron saint Nicholas Cage? actually took his name from Luke Cage.
1: Ah, nice. So... Your patron saint.
0: <laughs> yes, my patron saint is Nicholas Cage.
1: And there's also a couple movies here. Directed by George Tillman Jr., Notorious is a 2009 biopic about Wallace and his life that stars rapper Jamal Woolard as Wallace. Which, I really like the theme song from that one. And I think
0: I talk about this a little bit in my episode. Uh, Jamal Woolard, who played... Biggie mm-hmm. was also a supporting character in the Tupac biopic All Eyes on Me.
1: Well, cuz they were probably related. Yeah. So they wanted to keep the characters similar. Yeah. Or the same. Yeah. Yeah. Would well, make sense. Producers included Sean Combs, Wallace's former managers Wayne Barrow and Mark Pitts, as well as Valletta Wallace. On January 16, 2009, the movie's debut debut at the Grand 18 Theater in Greensboro, North Carolina. Was postponed after a man was shot in the parking lot before the show. Jeez. That sucks. The film received mixed reviews and grossed over $44 million worldwide. Other cast members include Angela Bassett as Valletta, Derek Luke as Sean Combs, Antonique Smith as Faith Evans, Naturi Naughton as Lil Kim, Anthony Mackey as Tupac.
0: Okay, I could say that.
1: Yeah. Then, Bad Boy also released a soundtrack album to the film on January 13th, 2009. The album contains many of Wallace's hit singles, including Hypnotize and Juicy, as well as Rarities.
0: Oh, and if you guys don't know, Anthony Mackie is uh, Falcon in the Marvel movies. Okay. And becomes Captain America.
1: So then, Mackie doesn't play Tupac in the Tupac biopic? No, he doesn't. That's a really hard sentence to say, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the notorious biopic. But in 2018, which was only a couple years ago, the film City of Lies was produced based on Poole's investigation and Sullivan's book, which I mentioned earlier, Labyrinth, and cast Johnny Depp as Poole. And that was two years ago? Last year? Two years. 2018? Yep. That's all I have in this episode. (laughs) I know it ended on a weird spot, but that's all I got.
0: Yeah. Well, if you love TJ's segues, Segue. You can uh, segue right into going over to patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven and let us know how good we're doing by your generous donations. Uh, You can check us out on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. You can check us out on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT, still not saying our website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And if I said that too fast, you can always check those out in our show notes. Please come talk to us. We love hearing what you guys have to say. And that's pretty much it for this episode. Thank you for checking us out. Make sure to check us out in two weeks' time where we talk about Tupac. Woo! So now we're gonna go from the East Coast to the West Coast, the Best Coast. Woo-woo. Oh no, she didn't.
1: <laughs> I'm from South Carolina. I can't say that. I know, right? Yeah. So uh, again, thanks, I'm right, guys. smack dab in the middle. I don't mind which coast it is, as long as it's a coast.
0: <laughs> like the coast of Texas.
1: Coast of Alabama. <laughs> That's why I said I don't care which coast it is as long as it's a coast. Meaning, i.e., I, I want to be on, by an ocean no matter where it is. How often do you go to the ocean? Not that much anymore because I live in the frickin' valley now. I mean, it's so far away. <sighs> it makes me sad. All right. But I I'm love wrapping, the ocean. Anyways, can we be done now? <laughs> yes. Bye, guys. Bye.
3: Yeah. This album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. Yeah. all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that call the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter and all the niggas in the struggle you know what I'm saying (laughs) it's all good baby baby The hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight, cause I ride tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world's trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Peace of raw G, Brucey B, kick the free. Funk, master flex, love bug, star ski. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. Uh. And if you don't know, now you know, nigga. Uh. And if you don't know, now we you know, the nigga. Uh. And if you don't know, now you know, nigga. Representing B Town in the house. Show the mafia, laugh